the uh, head or the chancellor of the seminary that I graduated from, Reformed Theological Seminary, RTS, is a man by the name of Ligon Duncan. Ligon Duncan. And Ligon Duncan's a good man. I liked Ligon Duncan a good deal. I took a class with him, one class only, although I was able to interact with him a few times. And the class that I took was a class called The Theology of Worship. The Theology of Worship. And I really liked the class, along with lots of good, difficult theological work. He would always give us these little pieces of practical wisdom for future ministers of the gospel. One day he told us a story of a theologian and pastor who was a good friend of his, somebody you might be familiar with, a man by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, a good minister of the gospel. And Ferguson, he would occasionally visit Duncan's church and fill the pulpit for him. Duncan had a church, big church in the PCA down in Mississippi. And he told us the story of one time Ferguson coming to his church and he's about to get ready to preach and he's just about to go up to the pulpit. And right before he does, he's overwhelmed with this flood of apprehension and fear and starts to break out or starts to break out in sort of a cold sweat. His nerves start to get the best of him, and he runs into the congregation real quick to find Duncan. And he started to think to himself, oh no, I think I preached this exact sermon the last time that I was here last year. So he finds Duncan, and he says, hey, uh, Ligon, do you remember the sermon that I preached the last time that I was here? And Duncan says, of course I do. You preached on so-and-so, or this and whatever passage this is. It was fantastic. Ferguson looks at him and says, Well, I guess if you loved it so much, I'll just preach it again. (laughs) Well, the practical piece of advice that came along with that story, Duncan told all of his students, he goes, Make sure, especially as a young preacher, that you're keeping a detailed log of all of the places that you've preached and exactly what you preached at that church. And I found that to be very good advice because I'm floating around preaching at this church and that church, and you're like, did I preach that sermon over there? Did I preach it over here? Did I tell that story? And you forget. You think your memory you know, will do the job for you, but it won't. Well, in a small way, I think I failed to put that great piece of practical advice into practice. Now, I know I haven't preached this sermon before, But I'm not sure if I've given the analogy that I'm about to give before. I couldn't remember. But if I have, either way, it's always good to refresh yourself on a little piece of Greek mythology. And particularly, the idea of a Procrustean bed. A Procrustean bed. If you've studied Greek mythology at all, that should sound familiar to you. A Procrustean bed. Procrustes, in Greek mythology... He's the son of Poseidon, and Procrustes was a nasty, nasty dude. He set up this house along a busily traveled road, had lots of passengers on it, and he would invite weary travelers to come and spend the night in his bed. Sounds like a pretty nice guy. But when these passengers would fall asleep, Procrustes, if they were shorter than the bed that he put them in, He would bind their legs and their arms, and he would stretch their body. And if they were a little bit larger than the bed, he would saw off their legs so that they fit perfectly 
into the shape of that bed. But no matter what, whether you were too short or too tall, you were going to fit into Procrustes' bed perfectly. Now, I think that this is what many of us do with the Bible, with the gospel. We stretch it when we need it stretched, and we simply cut out the parts that don't fit into our bed or don't fit into our worldview. But the exact opposite should be the case, right? The gospel should not be squeezed into our societal norms and into our cultural proclivities, but the gospel should bend us and shape us so that we are conformed into the image of Christ. Now, preaching straight through a book of the Bible is a wonderful way to let the word of God reign supreme, to let it shape us rather than doing the opposite. So that's exactly what I'm going to do today. I'm going to preach through an entire book of the Bible. Now, you shouldn't be worried, as you just heard, because the book that I'm going to preach through today is a very short book, spanning just one chapter. Today's sermon text, as just read, is from the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. Now, the basic storyline of Philemon is quite simple. Paul, while under house arrest, he's befriended, mentored, and then converted a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus. He's now writing a letter to Onesimus' owner, Philemon. And this beautiful, dense, succinct Pauline letter is addressed to Philemon, our beloved friend and laborer, to the beloved Aphia, that's Philemon's wife, to Archippus, that's their son, and the church in your house. But it would be quite misleading to claim that the entire letter was meant for Philemon's immediate family. And even further, it would be even more misleading to assume that the letter was meant for his entire house. The nature of this letter is deeply, deeply personal. It's from one Christian brother to another. From a seasoned vet to a rookie. This letter is from Paul to Philemon. And this sets the letter apart as something quite unique in the canon of Scripture. There is nothing else like this in Scripture. And I, for one, am very glad that the, uh, the Spirit has moved in such a way that the church was able to recognize the self-authenticating nature of this little letter. The life and the theology of the church is much richer for it. Right? We have nothing like the letter of Philemon. So as we stated, the letter is a personal one, a personal letter from the Apostle called Paul. And the Apostle Paul goes to extraordinary lengths in this letter to assure that he is going to handle what is a very, very personal and difficult issue with special care and diplomacy. Any diplomatic intentions that Paul would have had would have been neutralized at best and absolutely destroyed at worst, if this letter were have to have been read aloud to the entire church. Or even worse, if it had been circulated around to all the other churches, as many of the Pauline letters were. The letter is for Philemon, and for Philemon alone. And Paul, Paul exhibits extraordinary wisdom in doing this. That's because it's not simply sufficient 
to say correct things. It's not simply sufficient to have the right ideas. Words must be communicated in an appropriate manner, with the right tone, at the right time. Right? The way we deliver messages matter. If a message, even a true one, is delivered in a clumsy and inconsiderate way, it can many times have the opposite of its intended purpose, its intended effect. In this letter, Paul is going to be asking a favor of Philemon. And because the nature of the letter is one of favor asking, Paul starts the letter in a very unique way, a way that he doesn't start any other letter that we have. Look at verse 1 of our text. Paul introduces himself right off the bat as Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now on the surface, to those of us that are familiar with the New Testament, that might not seem all that uncommon. It doesn't seem all that unique. But if you take a moment and juxtapose it to the way that Paul typically starts his letters, you will see something quite unique. Listen to the way that Paul starts his great letter to the Romans. Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle. Colossians, Paul, an apostle. Now look at Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So what's different? What's unique? Paul designates himself as a prisoner rather than as an apostle. He seems to be careful here not to pull apostolic rank. Now, don't get me wrong. His self-designation is still honorable, quite honorable, as he is not so much a prisoner of Rome, which he certainly was, but he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But because he is about to ask a favor of Philemon, he starts the letter off in a gentle, kind, compassionate way, so as to not give off any sort of a vibe of, of, of conscription or force upon the hand of Philemon. He wants to approach Philemon on equal footing. All right, Paul's not the head of my department coming to me saying, well, Justin, as the head of the philosophy department, I was wondering if you'd do me the favor of so-and-so. Because when worded that way, what does that mean? Hey, Justin, do this because I am your superior and I want you to. Or even further, I'm telling you to do it. That's not what Paul's doing here. Right? Paul is setting the tone so as to let Philemon, as a brother in Christ, freely do him this favor. So that's how Paul starts the letter. And then, after the introductory remarks, or prescript, Paul sets off on his customary expression of thanks that is always sort of interwoven with this intercessory prayer report. This is a common Pauline trademark. You see it starting in verse 4. Look at verse 4. 
Paul says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. We see this pattern continually in Paul. His letters always have this pattern. He opens Romans, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. We see the same pattern in Colossians and throughout the rest of Paul. And as a side note, who among us speaks this way? Who greets their Christian brothers with a thanks and a prayer update, a prayer report? Hey, good to see you. By the way, I unceasingly pray for you. I always make mention of you in my prayers. Not many of us. And that should clue us in on a gaping hole in our prayer life. Ask yourself, are you constantly thanking the Lord and praying for the saints? Now, there's two things, a couple things at least, that we should garner from Paul's prayer report. As we just stated, we should be humbled when we compare it to our own prayer life. And secondly, we should see that this prayer report, this prayer request, it is delicately laced with the prowess and potency of Pauline persuasiveness. Paul is a very clever guy. This is a clever man we're dealing with. Notice that the very qualities or the attributes that Paul says that he is thankful for in Philemon, they're the qualities that he's about to ask Philemon to exhibit. They're the qualities that he wants him to show in this particular case. Paul is counting on the fact that Philemon will show love and loyalty, which are the fruit of his Christian faith. Look at the prayer again. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and your... I know you have love, Philemon. I know you have faith, which you have towards Jesus and all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you, In Christ Jesus. See what Paul's doing here. Paul is asking, and he is hoping, that Philemon's faith will bear fruit. That is because real faith is not private. Real faith is external. Real faith is not internal. But real faith is effective and it bears fruit. Real faith produces good works. And Paul, he has one particular good work in mind for Philemon to perform. One test, if you would, of the reality of his faith. And the resources that Philemon is going to need to perform this work, they don't involve any material affluence. They don't involve wealth. Mind you, Philemon was certainly a wealthy man, and we know this simply from the fact that he owned slaves. But his wealth is not called upon here. What is called upon of Philemon 
is the good work of Christian grace. Now, to us, to 21st century American Christians, our ears can become very numb to the idea of the virtue of grace. We're swimming in a sea of grace talk all the time. But this is a concept that was absent, non-existent in the realm of Greek and Roman ethical thought. Right? We are so used to the concept of grace, we can't imagine a world without it. It's like your iPhone. Right? There was a time not too long ago, it wasn't there. But now you can't imagine a world without it. And that's exactly how it was with grace, too. There is not a semblance, not a drop of grace in Aristotelian virtue ethics. I teach a whole course on Aristotle. There's no grace. There's justice, which is giving to those what they deserve. But there was nothing resembling grace. But this Christ, who Paul preaches, ushers in a brand new ethic. A new way of living the good life. A different way of living the good life. A way that Philemon's wealthy friends and his neighbors would have looked upon as being utterly foolish. Grace? What absolute hogwash? What nonsense! Now, how would Paul like to see the Christian grace of Philemon manifest itself? Paul is going to send Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave, back to him and ask that he be embraced without penalty. And even further, that he be set free. Hey, Philemon, embrace your runaway slave, take him back, and set him free. Now, once again, I think it's really difficult for 21st century Westerners to grasp the magnitude of this request. And that's because we are so self-righteously disgusted by the practice of slavery. Right? To us, all slave owners, they make Pol Pot look like Gandhi. They make Stalin look like Mother Teresa. This seems to us like, all right, ho-hum, big deal. Let the slave go, of course. What's the big deal? We all know slavery's monstrous. Let him go, Philemon. But this is a quite different world we're dealing with. This is a world where every person of wealth owned slaves. One great New Testament scholar says, and I quote, To them, owning slaves was as natural as someone in the 21st century owning a car or a television. Indeed, most people would wonder how you could get on without them. To us, of course, it's abhorrent. But to them, it was like electricity or gas or cars. You couldn't imagine society without it. Now, this particular test of grace is magnified and intensified by the fact that not only is Philemon setting a slave free, He's setting a runaway slave free. A slave that has broken the law. Think about how this would look to Philemon's family. Think about how it would look to his colleagues, to his neighbors. Even further, if runaway slaves are rewarded with freedom, what do you think will happen to the rest of Philemon's slaves? 
You think they're just going to hang out? Imagine the financial toll and the public ridicule that this act would cause the wealthy Philemon. The damage would be absolutely monumental. But Paul is preaching Christ crucified and risen. And that message bears the fruit of a completely different type of world. A completely different way of living the good life. Preaching this Christ brings with it the destruction of the normal social order. Preaching this Christ destroys your Procrustean beds. Normalcy is shattered. But Paul is promising that those crushed pieces of our fallen normalcy are going to be reconciled into a glorious new unity. This Christ brings the reconciliation of body and soul. He's going to bring the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. He's going to bring the reconciliation of male and female. And he is going to bring the reconciliation of slave and free. So back to the letter. Remember the charity and the humility with which Paul opened the letter? Not calling on his apostolic status? As the letter progresses, we see a minor stiffening of tone as Paul moves along. He's going to give a gentle reminder to Philemon starting in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now Philemon, I could call upon. Nay, I could even command you to do what is your duty as a son of Christ. But I'm not going to go quite that far just yet. You see Paul's style here. It's kind of this playful, gentle, Christian persuasion. He loves Philemon in Christ. So he wants him to do this freely on his own. But we should be careful to note here that Paul will not allow for evil. Love will not allow for evil. Paul will not allow for Philemon to choose that which is not lovely. So if Philemon were to refuse, Paul would certainly step in and make sure that love wins by making sure that what is good happens. Right? Love doesn't win for Paul, and it certainly doesn't win for Christ by letting Philemon do whatever he wants. Love wins when the beloved is grinded upon to do what is good, and justice is served. Love wins whenever we die to ourself and are born again. Love wins whenever man moves from man as however he happens to be to man as he should be in his new reconciled relationship to Christ. That's our movement. Man from however I happen to be needs to be transformed to man as we should be, as we could be in our relationship to Christ. And this reconciliation is going to involve the establishment of a brand new family. Paul, in verse 10, he calls Onesimus, a runaway slave, his son. 
In verse 12, he says he is his own heart. And in verse 17, he pleads to Philemon in these beautiful words. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put it on my tab. Put it on my account. You see, as brothers and sisters of Christ, because of this reconciliation, we are all on equal footing. The traditional societal roles, the traditional family is shattered and superseded by our reconciled relationship to Christ. This is quite emphatically and dramatically, shockingly driven home by Christ in what we read in our gospel lesson today. Right? In Luke 14, Christ says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right? It's quite clear that lukewarm loyalty is not acceptable. And our traditional understanding, it needs to be reconceptualized in the light of the reconciliation that Christ has accomplished on Calvary. So when Philemon, when he sees face to face his runaway slave, a slave who he could have under the custom of Roman law have put to death, and not just put to death, runaway slaves were publicly crucified. Paul does not want him to see Onesimus standing there. He says, when you see him, receive him as you would receive me. And it is the way that Philemon is to receive this runaway slave, which is going to be the true litmus test of his Christian grace. Hey, if you really believe Philemon, this is what it's going to look like. Philemon, having been made new in Christ, He's to embrace the role of the insulted father from the parable of the prodigal son. My father, he preached a great sermon on the prodigal son a few years back. It's one of my favorite sermons that I've heard him give. And I'm about to rip him off. After all, art is love and theft. Art is love and theft. If you love something, you're going to steal it. And that's what art is. So the story, if you remember the sermon, if you remember the passage, the story of the prodigal son is one that's familiar to most of you. But the title is very misleading. Right? The parable is not about the prodigal son in and of himself. It's about two sons. And even further, the star of the show is the remarkable father. One scholar says that the parable ought to be called the parable of the running father. For it is the way that the incredible, insulted father, it is the way that he receives his runaway son that has caused him incalculable heartache, financial damage, and public shame. He's the star of the show. It's the way that he receives his son that's really what's important in the parable. The insulted, despised, rejected father, he does not wait for his son with some sort of a lecture. He does not wait to condemn his son and read him a record of his wrongs. 
But the text tells us, if you remember, that against all oriental customs of dignity for older men, the father ran to meet his son. Right? Longing for reconciliation. Giving no mind to how it's going to look to the rest of the world. He felt compassion. He felt love. And then he ran. What Paul is asking Philemon to do is to display socially costly, self-emptying, self-deprecating, and humiliating love. Not simple love, humiliating love. He is asking him to receive Onesimus back without penalty. But not only to do that, but to run to him, to embrace him, and then set him free. Philemon is to throw off the customary ways of Roman culture and be transformed into the reconciled image, the image of the running father. He is to run after Onesimus, just as our father, the patient God of Israel, runs to his defiled sheep. Those sheep who disgraced his image, defiled his name, and caused him incalculable heartache. And after all, that's what Jesus does. Jesus is God that runs after those who have run away from the Father's house. Jesus is God running after you. And we, like Philemon, are called to imitate as best we can this selfless love. And this love that you and I are called to display, in most instances, it's going to look small. It's going to look insignificant. It's going to look like Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4. If you remember the account of Zerubbabel, he's the governor of Judah in the immediate aftermath of the Babylonian captivity. Now, that might sound like a position of power. Oh, the governor of Judah. But the governor of Judah in the immediate aftermath of the Babylonian captivity would be a position that has about as much power as the mayor of Rock Tavern. Maybe less. Is there even a mayor of Rock Tavern? That, that's, that's what the, the kind of power the mayor of Judah would have in the immediate aftermath of the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians have come in and sacked the city. They've raised the blessed temple. They've deported the people. And here's Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4. And the image is of him standing over the wreckage and the ruin of that once proud city. And he's got a plumb line in his hand. And he's getting ready. He's preparing himself to lay the cornerstone of a new house of worship. How minuscule. How insignificant. How stupid that act must have seemed. How foolhardy. Zerubbabel is spitting into the wind. He's trying to drain the ocean with a thimble. What real world change could he possibly bring? What's the cash payout? Our civilization was just destroyed, Zerubbabel. What are you doing? You're standing there building a church? Get a grip. The republic has fallen. And this is the word of the Lord that came to Zerubbabel. 
in Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And out of the ash heap that was Judah, a fire, a conflagration of hope for the weary, salvation for the lost has swept across the entire globe. By the spirit of God, the slain lion of Judah has risen and his message has spread to Judea and to Jerusalem and to Samaria and to the ends of the globe. Now, the Philemon-like acts of love that you and I are called to in our daily lives, they may seem insignificant. They may seem valueless. After all, don't they? In the face of wreckage, in the face of civil unrest, in the face of the seeming instability of our republic, in the face of starvation, in the face of cultural degradation, in the face of the unceasing assault of death and decay? What are your acts of love going to do? Yet these acts of love are not only your duty, they are of infinite value as they take root not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We Christians, we are called to the costly gospel of love. We are called to be like Zerubbabel's, standing over the shattered wreckage of ruined humanity with a plumb line, laying building blocks of reconciliation. And we are to run towards the fire. We are to run into the fray, back towards what needs to be rebuilt. Zerubbabel, he doesn't go to a fresh place. He doesn't go to a new land, a place where there's no baggage. He goes right to where the smolding embers still are. He goes right back into the fire. He runs to the debris, stands on top of it, and starts to rebuild. And likewise, each and every one of us, we are called to run back into the fray. We are called to run like Zerubbabel. We are called to run like our father ran after us in Christ. If your faith is real, it will run. You will empty the tank. Your feet will be swift to run to forgive others. To deplete ourselves that others might be filled. We are called to nothing less than what Philemon was called to. We are called to die to ourselves and in that death to find life abundant. Not by might, nor by your power, but by the spirit of the ascended and victorious Christ.